0: Is there a place in faith for imagination? Is there room for something beyond rote obedience, for creative, even playful invitations extended from creation to creator? When it comes to what father and son or father and daughter might do together, does God have any interest in his children being creative? How might he respond if you started dreaming up adventures that would bring him glory. This is a story about leadership and courage, about coming of age and the eons old tension between fathers and sons. But mostly, this is a story about a God who believes in the power of the word, perhaps. A God who wants to tell us about a friend of his who saw the unknown not as a dead end, but as a doorway. I'm Justin Gerhardt, welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. a third of a shekel, an exorbitant price but non-negotiable if an Israelite wants his axe sharpened by a Philistine blacksmith. And why would an Israelite do such a thing? Because he has no choice. The Hebrew blacksmiths, all of them, have been disappeared. Here one day, gone the next, the Philistines have snuffed the flames of Hebrew foundries like lamplight and with them, any hope of manufacturing weapons for rebellion. Thanks to this and other recent moves in their long-standing match with Israel, Philistia now dominates the chessboard of territory west of the Jordan. Check. But the game isn't over. The king has not been taken. Nor for that matter, and perhaps more importantly, has his son. Together, the father and his prince lead a rebel force of Hebrew men, 3,000 recently, but due in part to poor leadership from King Saul, the number now stands at about 600. Thanks to the Philistine chokehold on their blacksmiths, none of these fighters, save Saul and his son and second-in-command Jonathan, have sword or spear, axes, plowshares, clubs, the venom of a man fighting for his home and his God, these are the only weapons with which the Israelites are armed. These are the brave ones, though. The rest of Israel has given up fighting and taken to hiding. Caves, thickets, rocks and pits and cisterns, anywhere, anything that will shelter them. Jonathan, twenty years old or so, stands on the edge of the rebel camp, pensive, watching the Philistine activity on the hill a mile to the north. A garrison of soldiers, camped and comfortable, as if this is their land. No regard for Yahweh, they sharpen stolen swords, gamble for stolen clothing, cook their pigs and fondle their whores and pray to their idols. Defile Yahweh's land desecrate Yahweh's name, defy Yahweh's power. It's maddening. And someone needs to do something about it. Jonathan looks over, perhaps, at his father. Saul's sitting in the shade of a pomegranate tree, ten, maybe twenty feet tall. The pomegranate is a bush, really, that with the right guidance can learn to be a tree. With the right pruning can bear an abundance of marvelous fruit but left to its own devices it becomes leggy unproductive more thorn than anything else at the king's feet the leaf shadows jerk and jounce erratic in the breeze what is it like to be Saul's son your father The man everyone thinks looks like a king, tall, handsome, the one who ushered Israel into its national adulthood. Finally, a king like the nations. But he's rash, impatient, and increasingly obsessed with maintaining his power. When your dad becomes king during your early teen years, how much time, how much energy does he have for you? when, during a season of war, you become his second-in-command, what are the signs, the tells, that begin to convince you your father is much more devoted to his throne than he is to his God? What is it like to find your faith strong and your parents' faith weak? Jonathan's gaze moves to the man at his father's side, a hija. A member of the rejected priestly house of Eli, wearing an ephod like a talisman. Jonathan muses, perhaps recalling Ahijah's uncle's inauspicious name, Ichabod. Glory gone. Does Jonathan shake his head at his father, recruiter of a suspect priest? Glory gone. It's tragically apropos. Surely Jonathan knows about Yahweh's pronouncement not long ago at Gilgal, when the prophet Samuel said explicitly to Saul, Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Whether he knows of Samuel's judgment or not, Jonathan is wondering, as he looks back across the ravine at the interlopers, what might be possible? If Israel's leader relied on Yahweh, Jonathan is longing for a father he can partner with. Suddenly, the prince has an idea. He nods to his armor-bearer and gestures away from the camp with his eyes. Come, he whispers, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. No one sees them leave. But soon, everyone will know they've gone. The two men make their way north through the rocky landscape toward the cliffs flanking the pass. Jonathan moves quickly with the fluid ease of youth. His armor-bearer stays beside him, carrying the shield he uses to guard Jonathan's right side in battle. His neck swivels left and right, avian eyes flicking around, watching for threats. Eventually, they come to the ravine, a wadi running between two steep cliffs the pair of rock faces possessing enough personality and inhospitality to be named by the inhabitants of the area, Bozes and Sena, Slippery and Thorny. Jonathan chooses a line as the two of them scramble down Sena. Up till this moment, Jonathan's sword and spear have been priceless resources. Now they become liabilities as he takes care not to find himself tumbling headlong to the bottom of the cliff. At last, the two young men reach the wadi floor. They clap the rock dust from their hands, and Jonathan looks up at Bozez, rising toward Mikmash, toward the Philistine invaders, toward glory for Yahweh. Come on, he says, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. And then, with a far-off gaze northward, perhaps Yahweh will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving, whether by many or by few. If it was not clear before, it is now. Jonathan is proposing the two of them attack 20 or more well-armed Philistine soldiers from a strategically inferior position without the king's consent. Jonathan, eyes brimming with holy imagination, looks at his armor bearer and waits for a response. (laughs) Do all that you have in mind, comes the reply. Lead the way. I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan smiles. Come on then, we'll cross over to them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are and not go up to them. The armor bearer nods. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that Yahweh has given them into our hands. Jonathan moves into the middle of the ravine, his armor-bearer beside him. Jonathan shouts, perhaps, up to the top of Bozes. Up above, a Philistine soldier hears a voice rising over the cliff, hits another soldier on the arm and gestures toward the wadi. They get up and walk over to the edge, their hearts pounding surely as they ready themselves for a surprise attack. But when they peer down, Their expressions of concern are replaced by mocking smiles. It's only two of them! One soldier shouts back toward the camp, perhaps. Other Philistines gather at the rim, hungry for Hebrew blood. Look! One of them shouts, aiming more at Jonathan and his armor-bearer than the other Philistines. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. If the soldiers deliberate as to whether they should spend their energy climbing down to dispense with the measly two enemies, they decide against it. Instead, one jeers, Come up to us, and we'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan grins. The game is afoot. Climb up after me. Jonathan says to his armor-bearer, his words bright with faith, Yahweh has given them into the hand of Israel. He grabs hold of the rock, moves upward from ledge to ledge, fingers grabbing ridges, feet pushing against spurs in the limestone, a prayer murmured surely with every foot of progress. The armor-bearer ascends behind him, paying attention to the hand and toe holds used by Jonathan. All the while, the Philistine soldiers taunt them, tossing insults down like stones on the heads of this ridiculous pair. Finally, the two Israelites heave themselves up, joining the Philistines at the top of the cliff. Do the soldiers offer to let them catch their breath? I want you fresh when I slaughter you. Do they snicker and crack their knuckles, circling their prey like laughing hyenas? If they do, their howling soon takes on a different tenor because when Jonathan swings his sword, its blade finds purchase in a Philistine cheek. Another swing, another blow. The circling soldiers move in and take aim with their own weapons, but they cannot seem to land a hit. Jonathan darts and ducks, sidesteps and swerves with incredible speed. It's like they're moving in slow motion around him. Meanwhile, the armor bearer isn't just blocking blows intended for Jonathan, but making attacks of his own. They stick together, scuttling in every direction across a half acre of terrain. Back to back, the two of them lunge, pivot, fade, and advance, piercing armor and flesh, severing limbs, laying waste to soldier after soldier. Three, seven, ten. 14 fallen Philistines litter the ground as Yahweh enables these excellent warriors to be much more than excellent warriors. Something more akin to angels of death. When the dust settles, twenty Philistines lie on Yahweh's earth, the dry soil licking up their blood, dust reclaiming dust. Jonathan, exhausted, drops to his knees, surely, and utters a prayer of gratitude. Nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving, whether by many or by few. The Philistines from the outpost at Mikmash, who were not killed by Jonathan and his armor-bearer, run for their lives and bring word with them back to the Philistine army of two angels of death who brought down ten times their number without difficulty. Their terror is contagious and spreads like airborne particles from one warrior to the next, carried by the breath of Yahweh. Eventually, the rest of the Israelite forces join Jonathan in his advance, 600 unarmed men against multitudes, only to find the Philistine forces in absolute chaos, killing each other with the swords they stole from Israel. As word of the ensuing victory spreads, Israelite deserters return. Hebrews everywhere emerge from their caves, from their thickets, from their rocks and pits and cisterns. They have found something, someone who will shelter them. When this story is told in Scripture, It will conclude with these words so on that day Yahweh saved Israel and why did this salvation come to pass it happened because Yahweh wanted it to because he loved his oppressed people but it also happened because one man had the nerve to imagine what was possible with God because Jonathan was foolish enough to daydream in faith to make some holy mischief in case Perhaps Yahweh wanted to shake up the game. The last day of Jonathan's life will play out like a tragedy. He will go to war again with his father. Saul, still haunted by the demons of his own insecurity and pride, will look to his side and see Jonathan, willing to serve, wanting to partner, hoping for change. On the slopes of Mount Gilboa, this forever prince will lift his sword for the last time in a battle against the Philistines. If Jonathan murmurs a prayer, or twenty, during the fighting, If he imagines the tide turning and his father experiencing finally the work of Yahweh in a way that draws him close, changes his heart. If Jonathan imagines things changing so that he can enjoy an easier relationship with his dear friend David. If he imagines introducing David to his five-year-old son, Mephibosheth. Jonathan's perhaps will dim to a perhaps not. But this is no tragedy. Instead of granting these wishes, Yahweh will take Jonathan home that day. Time for you to be with a father who loves you. Welcome to a new world, my prince, where there is ruling, good ruling, to be done. I have some ideas for what we might do together, but I imagine you've got some as well. And Jonathan will grin, surely. The game is afoot. Hey, Justin here. I hope you were blessed by the story of the King and the Prince. Man, I like Jonathan. If you are enjoying Holy Ghost Stories and are wondering what it takes to create this show, it's simple. All I had to do was quit my job, devote all day, every day to creating these episodes, and hope people like you found these encounters with God valuable enough to chip in on Patreon so that this podcast continues to exist. You can do that at patreon.com/slash holy ghost stories. There's a link in the show notes. It's super simple, and patrons get access to a secret feed with bonus episodes of Holy Ghost Stories. Super fun remixed scenes and other great stuff as well. I'll see you over there at patreon.com/slash holy ghost stories. Help me get these stories into the hearts of people all over the world. Speaking of Patreon, a special shout out to my shield bearers, the tours Vincenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric and Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Julie, Jamie, Steven, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie thank you. I would charge a mess of Philistines with you guys. Till next time.